There she is, Mariah Carey. That's Honey from 1997. Honey is from what I like to call Mariah Carey's Puffy Combs era. They worked together a lot. But me, I really love the original version of Honey. The Bad Boy remix with Mace and the Locks, it's awesome. But there's something so pure about Mariah Carey's Honey vocals. It's like she's living up to the title of the song. The vocals are sweet. They're smooth. They're rare. You can almost feel that sort of tawny color to them. Like, she's a genius. We're going to talk a bit about Mariah Carey today because really anybody could do a whole season, five seasons of a podcast of Black Girl Songbook about the life and work and influence of Mariah Carey. But we are going to talk about her a little bit today. This is an episode where you will be able to hear and feel the influence of Mariah Carey's voice and vocal arrangements. You'll be able to hear the influence that she has on the talented recording artists of today. You will hear stories about her walk, her high-heeled walk now, to superstardom. You will hear full Mariah's songs. This is going to be fun, and do you know why? It's because this is your Black Girl Songbook. This is the place and the space where Black women in music receive the credit that we are due. You all know me as an author, a music writer, a culture writer, editor, all of those types of things. You see me sometimes on screen talking about this recording artist or that recording artist. But what a lot of people may not know is that I used to work at the Worldwide Leader, like my producer Trudy, as a matter of fact. We both used to work at ESPN. I was an editor on the Culture Desk. And we would write and create content at the intersection of sport and culture. It's a great job. I miss ESPN on some days only now, but I do miss it sometimes. And one of the things that I recall about ESPN is that there was a department there called Stats and Info. I love them. The people that worked in that department, listen... They knew every stat about every player, team, every everything. You could just ring them up, email them, Slack them, and they would just shoot you back all the information. It was amazing. And as a matter of fact, you can follow ESPN Stats and Info at ESPN Stats Info on Twitter. They're tweeting out all the stats of your fave athletic stars all the time. And I say all this to say that sometimes I do look at the stats of recording artists. I do, and maybe that's also because I used to work at Billboard, so I'm used to things moving up and down on the charts and how much people sold and all those kinds of things. So as much as I love the sound and the magic and the music, 
I pay attention to the stats. They matter. They show me what folks are listening to, what people are streaming, what people are even still buying, what shows people are going to. That's what the stats and info about music show me. And if we're talking about Mariah Carey's stats, they're sick. Like, they're sick. Our story consultant, Taj, put together some of the stats. So let me just run through a few. And really, if I was you, I would just memorize them. Because no one does. Because as large as Mariah Carey is in our universe, as much as she's out here tweeting and performing and living her best life as a mom and a music executive and songwriter and still a fashion influencer and still giving you hair and voice and all of that, Mariah Carey still does not receive the constant and complete credit that she deserves for her impact on culture. Because let's just talk about the fact that Mariah Carey has 19 number one hits. That's 19 times going all the way to the top of the Billboard 200. This is a difficult feat for the best of artists. Because the only other artists in the history of recorded music on Mariah's number one level, it's the Beatles with 20 number one pop hits. So Mariah is literally second to the Beatles. Do we know how the Beatles are constantly and completely lifted up as geniuses, as the people who came over from the UK and just changed everything, really just brought us, you know, the modern version of rock and roll? So many documentaries, album covers. I mean, it goes on in books, movies, cartoons, you name it. They only have one more number one hit than Mariah. And I'm sorry, I just don't see Mariah being lifted up like that. Elvis Presley, another one who's heralded as just king of all, king of rock, king of pop, all of these things. There's yet another new biopic out about him right now. He has less number ones than Mariah. He has 18. Mariah has 19. Rihanna's pulling up, as she does, with 14 number one pop hits. Did you know that? Did you know she has those trophies on her CV, on her resume? 14. Folks are out here, where's Rihanna's album? Where is she? Maybe she's tired. <laughs> it could be, honestly, not to break everybody's heart. And I have no knowledge of what she's doing or not doing, aside from being a brand new mom and out here partying in the best maternity wear in history. I have no knowledge, but I will say this. She could have retired like 10 number one hits ago. And still been one of the best to ever do it. But she has 14 number one pop hits. And Michael Jackson is behind Rihanna with 13. But wouldn't you say out of all of these people that I just mentioned, 
that the people that we hear the most about would be the Beatles, Elvis, and Michael Jackson. And how we so rarely just are always just talking about Rihanna and our subject for today, Mariah Carey, like the genius, like the geniuses with the accomplishments that they are and that they have. So that was just one step. Mariah Carey is also the first artist to have their first five singles reach number one on the charts. I mean, that's just the definition of coming out swinging. Not once, twice, but five times. Just put out a record, number one. Put out a record, number one. Mariah is about to be officially, finally, long overdue. She's about to be officially inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That happens in mid-June 2022. Mariah Carey has not been credited enough with being one of the first and main artists to popularize the merge of hip-hop and R&B. Period. Mariah Carey has recorded 50 Teen studio albums from 1990s Mariah to 2018's Caution. And all, like all of that work, everything that we mentioned, that isn't even taking into consideration the way she has essentially changed the game with regard to Christmas songs. Okay, so that song, All I Want for Christmas is You, that song is a global hit. It's a hit around the entire world. They're partying to All I Want for Christmas is You, not just at your grocery store while you're shopping and you hear it, you know, over the speakers, not just there, not just at every holiday party that you go to, but I'm talking about around the world on all the different continents. They're partying too. All I want for Christmas is you. It's like, all I want for Christmas is you is, it's become like white Christmas. It's become like Jingle Bells. Oh, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. That right there is Ella Fitzgerald giving us holiday spirit. Jingle Bells is, it's sung by everyone. Ella Fitzgerald's version to me is one of the best. But the song itself, not even recorded, but just the song written down. has That song has been around since the 1800s. Like, it's been around since forever. It's a proper, like, eternal hit, Jingle Bells is. So Ella Fitzgerald obviously didn't write it. God bless her. She's an icon, and she's a songwriter herself. But she didn't write Jingle Bells. What people either don't know or tend to forget or strategically disremember is the fact that Mariah Carey co-wrote All I Want for Christmas is You. She wrote it with one of her early collaborators, someone that worked with her for years, 
Walter Afanasiev. I hope I'm saying that the right way. But she co-wrote the song. It's so gorgeously written. It's so like unself-consciously created. Like the song sparkles. It, it literally sparkles. You could see the Christmas lights coming off of that song when you're listening to it. It's like your best fantasy of a Christmas day. It's become part of the fabric of the holiday season. Even if you do get sick of it sometimes, like our audio producer, Donnie, you can't deny the song's impact on culture. You cannot. I was just talking about your best fantasy of a Christmas day. And while we're speaking of fantasy, we have to talk about Mariah Carey's 1995 fantasy. I'm here to say that I think that's my favorite Mariah Carey song, particularly the remix. It's awesome. The video's incredible. At the amusement park, on the roller coaster, it's too much. When we first heard that song, when that song was new, everything didn't already sound like that. I'm not saying hip-hop and R&B had never been on the same record, but it had never been quite that cool. It had never hit quite that hard. She picked ODB, not just a random member of the Wu, no, of the Wu-Tang Clan, like the crazy one. God bless his soul. He's been gone for a while now. So here's Mariah, who was supposed to be like racially ambiguous and did we even know she was black, which we did know, but she wasn't being marketed like that. Here's Mariah Carey basically walking into the parter with like your hood rat cousin, who we all love. It was amazing, man. Let's hear just a little bit of fantasy right now, and then we'll discuss it. And then we'll hear from a special guest who has a bunch of insight about Mariah Carey's phenomenal 2005 emancipation of Mimi. I can't wait to talk to her. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to say yet who she is, but you know her. Here's the fantasy remix, which as I said features the late old dirty bastard aka ODB from the Wu-Tang Clan. The original fantasy was produced by Dave Jam Hall and the remix officially titled Fantasy featuring ODB Bad Boy Fantasy was produced by Mariah Carey, Sean Puffy Combs, and Hall. Listen in. Baby, baby, come on, baby, come on, baby, come on. What's better, right? Like, what what song is better than that? Yes, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. I'm inspired right now by what I write about Mariah Carey in my new book, Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. I wrote about the times I've interviewed Mariah Carey in Shine Bright, I wrote about her backstory. I wrote about how her mother, who was a sort of a bit player in operas in New York, trained her 
once she heard Mariah sort of emulating her mom, who was just kind of practicing her parts around the house. I write about Mariah in Shine Bright because, man, listen, she's just, as we said, with all those stats, she's one of the most important recording artists ever to pick up the microphone or a pen to write a song. So I say, it's not just that I adore Mariah Carey's Puffy era. We heard a little bit of Honey at the top of the show, which uh, Sean Puffy Combs is also a producer on. It's that while a lot of people live for Mariah Carey's ballads, and I do, I'm not mad at a good Mariah Carey ballad. I'm not, I'm not, but I'm a really big fan of her mid-tempo stuff. I just am. She brings it. It's the agility of her voice. Everyone's like, oh my God, Mariah can go so high. Oh my God, the five octaves. Yes, yes. Whisper range of the soprano. Mm Mm-hmm. I get it. But for me, it's the way she can bend syllables, man. And go from note to note to note. It's the way she can sound so conversational and be singing, though. And you hear that energy. And the singers that have come after her and everybody from who, um, is it Ariana, even Beyonce. You hear that. I'm talking, but I'm singing. And I'm not mumbling. And I'm not rapping. I'm talking, and I'm even talking fast. Oh, Sierra, you hear that in Sierra also, the song she did with Bow Wow. You hear that. And Mariah does that so well. I'm a Mariah fan, especially for, let's go back to 1993, just for a second, and think of Dream Lover, also produced, by the way, by David Jam Hall. David's an interesting character. He was one of Puffy's original hitmen. You remember Puffy had that creative posse that did so much of the bad boy work. So Dave Hall was a part of the hitmen, but Dave Hall was also married to, okay, this is just a fun fact. He was also married to Wanda Sykes for seven years during the 1990s when all of this was going down. I really have to wrap my head around because... Partners always have influence. So I need to go back and listen, like, what might Wanda and Dave been pillow talking about when all of this was being created? Here's just a little bit of Dream Lover. Can you not hear Mariah Carey just going up, up, and away in her beautiful balloon? I mean, it's all from this same moment in her career where she was just really feeling free. She was out of her first marriage, which by her own account was just crazy and abusive and just ridiculous. And her ex-husband, not Nick Cannon, her ex-husband, who was a record executive. You know, he was a C-level record executive. And he, he helped bring her to the world that he was really uncomfortable with Mariah Carey's growth. I don't think they expected her to be as big as she was. 
And I think they honestly really thought they could continue to act like Mariah Carey wasn't black. It's hard to to imagine for all of us who now just live in, you know, a world of the World Wide Web and the internet and, and social media and blogs and all of these things. But things used to really be filtered through gatekeepers. If it didn't occur in People Magazine or Vibe or Rolling Stone or XXL or The Source, like, or Entertainment Tonight on TV, maybe, or if it didn't happen on Arsenio Hall's couch or Sinbad's couch, you didn't know. I mean, maybe on the radio morning shows in your in your city or your town, there would be whispers on the wind about this, that, or a third, but you didn't know stuff. Stuff wasn't just everywhere. My guest about Mariah talks a little bit about how different that era was compared to now. But to go back to fantasy for a second, again, my favorite Mariah song. For the remix, Puffy Combs loops in from the low end of the Tom Tom Club's 1981 Genius of Love. Okay, so when I was in high school, Genius of Love was a big record. It was a big record. And Puffy pulls because that's his genius, really. Not that he samples, but that he knows what to sample and how to use it. You know, and he places the right sample with the right voice and energy. He chose that low-end part because that was the part during my high school dance era, which, yes, I was all up at the high school dance, which so was Puffy, that that was the part that we all went crazy on. So then when he becomes a grown-up creative and he's working with Mariah Carey, he uses what he knows from his high school experience or even his early college experience, that that's that part, right? Listen, just here's a little bit of Genius of Love, that part that I'm talking about. I mean, because right now, if you're like outside, if you're partying right now outside, then you know how Lotto, the rapper Lotto, sampled that same lick. And then got Mariah on the remix of Big Energy, which features DJ Khaled. The song, let me tell you, Big Energy, I like the original, I like the remix, I like the whole of everything. And what people aren't to me, even as the song is being played, even as the song is being streamed, what people to me aren't saying loud and proud in all caps, bold, italic, underline, what they're not saying is that big energy remix is more than black girl magic. It's not magic. It's not just, it didn't just occur because a wand was waved. It's black girl genius. It's black girls across generations working together creatively to make greatness. That's what the remix of Big Energy is doing. Be a fantasy, you ain't gonna believe this. Hold up, got me on the remix. 
You hear that? You see Mariah's influence? Lotto's a, a, a beautiful, young, a genius woman from Atlanta. And she's talking about she has Mimi on the remix. We're going to talk about that nickname and talk about the emancipation of Mimi in a minute. But I just want to lean into the mid-1990s for a little bit longer. Because people forget that Mariah has not always just been the queen of all. She was married, as I mentioned, to a record exec, and the divorce was crunchy. The separation and divorce was crunchy. It was crunchy. I remember when my fanship for her solidified. It was at the 1996 Grammys. You have to understand, this was a year. This was a year. This was Mariah Carey's. This was her year. She was up for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for Fantasy at the Grammys. She was up for Album of the Year for Daydream. And with Boys to Men, she was nominated for Record of the Year and Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals for Once We Day. Always Be My Baby, it was nominated for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance. Do you remember those records? I mean, we all kind of do because they're all classics. She was nominated at the Grammys for six awards. Six, six, S-I-X, six Grammys. She did not win one Grammy. When I think about it, when I think about that night, I posted this information that I just read to you at my Instagram last month. And folks were really in my comments in disbelief. But I'm here to remind you that regardless of Mariah Carey's many hits and even an album called Charm Bracelet, Mariah has risen to the highest echelon of pop music. But her journey has not necessarily been charmed. I was music editor of Vibe magazine the night of those Grammys. I was at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. It was a February, a February afternoon, because, you know, Grammy starts early in California, Pacific time. It was such a gorgeous day. Everybody knew it was Mariah's night. She opened the show. Oh, she came gliding out. Mariah Carey and Boys to Men opened the Grammys with One Sweet Day. Let's listen to just a snatch of One Sweet Day real quick. It's the definition of a creative and vocal and musical collaboration. And it's also the definition of performance. I'm telling you, I'm in the audience and my seats were good. The guys of Boys to Men walked on stage in white shawl collar dinner jackets. Mariah, I'm, I'm telling you, I said, and it's true, she floated out. That's how much it was her night. You know how when you know it's like your night and you have on shoes that do not hurt your feet? And you have on the right Spanx and the right dress and the hair is hitting just right and the lashes are fluttering 
The lip liner is drawn on perfectly. The gloss is just swiped on gorgeously. And you floating? She was floating. And she knew how good her work was. She floated out in a full black floor-length skirt, this sparkly black corset tank top. Oh, we thought she was modern. It just didn't even look like a traditional gown. And when she hit those high notes, and you know how we used to teach, we used to drag her. We didn't call it dragging, but we used to drag her for the way she moved her hands and these awkward little gestures. We used to mock her. It was terrible. We were mean. It was awful. We grew up. But she hit all those notes. And then when Mariah Carey and Wanye Morris sing together, and there's this moment where Wanye has removed his sunglasses. He's such a mess in a good way. He removed his sunglasses and he has them in his hand. Listen. That performance from that night is better than the recorded song. And it's a victory lap. It's not just that Daydream was on its way to selling over 20 million copies. And that Mariah was on her path to being, as we talked about, second only to the Beatles in terms of number one singles. It's not just that Carrie and Boys to Men at the time of the Grammy performance were sitting on the new milestone of most consecutive weeks at Billboard number one for one sweet day. It's not just those things. It's also that the world was being turned upside down. Musically? Oh, yes. Rock was gasping. Rock and roll? Oh, it was gasping. Because... The thing about boys to men, and that's why it's so significant that uh, boys to men and Mariah Carey came together for that collaboration, is that boys to men's 1992 end of the road broke a record set in 1956 by Elvis Presley's Don't Be Cruel. See, people weren't just out here breaking Elvis Presley records at that time. Folks in the music business just knew that records by the Beatles, records by people like Elvis Presley, folks thought those records were going to last forever. They weren't anticipating Four Brothers from Philly. Okay, managed too by Michael Bivens of New Edition. They didn't expect Four Brothers from Philly to break Elvis Presley's record. Oh, it was a moment. Oh, media didn't know how to deal with it. It's like, are we going to write about it? Are we not? Can we ignore it or do we have to blow it up? Please, I was in those meetings. It was a mess. It was a mess. So many of us Black people in the music industry, we were even like, wow. Like, wow. Like, we're really out here doing things because hip-hop was clawing its way onto pop radio playlists, too, at the same time. When Boys to Men was turning up. As I often say on this show, I need to also do a Black Boy Songbook because listen, there's just not enough said about what Black people do 
in music, and I'll say it in a nice way, it irritates me. It inspires me, but it irritates me. So this year at the Grammys, when it's Mariah's year, it was a competitive year, yes. But for Carrie to lose six of six Grammys on such a huge album, I'm telling you, it was a shaming. They shamed her. They said, no, 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 no. Happy to get you all excited, but no. Go home with no trophies, Miss Ma'am. As mad as I am about it still right now, imagine how I was back then. I was a furious Mariah Carey fan. Furious. But as we do, right? We choose not to let that stop us because the energy is that like, we're trying to stop you. We're trying to slow you down. We're not trying to let you have what's yours. We're not trying to let your dreams come true. We're not trying to allow you into the country club of, of, of being a superstar. We're not trying to allow you in the, to the creative spaces that are celebrated the most in this country. No, you're not allowed in. And so we can't let that shaming stop us. But let's talk to somebody who knows Mariah well. I know Mariah. I don't know her well. So let's talk to Marvette Brito. It is so wonderful. And really, we're lucky to have Marvette Brito on Black Girl Songbook for this episode. One, because Marvette is busy. Marvette Brito, she is the founder and president and CEO of the Brito Agency. She has worked in brand management, consultation, uh, narrative invention, um, just she overall helps people and entities glow up. She has worked with everyone from Alan Iverson, to Ananda Lewis, to Eve, to Estelle, to Gary Sheffield, to, of course, Mariah Carey. She's worked with brands such as, I mean, she works with the country of Anguilla. She works with Microsoft, Bacardi, Def Jam, President Barack Obama. Just She's an award-winning global brand strategist. She's Tony nominated. She, You hear her opinions and thoughts on CNN and MSNBC. I mean, all of that being said, she's also a friend of mine. What is going on, Danielle? This is, this feels like such a providential moment because we have really grown up in this business and synchronized in our gifts um, and fertilizing those gifts as as through the the fellowship and sisterhood that we have shared, um, and and no matter the frequency of how we talk, uh, how often we talk, how often we see each other, it, it still feels like the warmest um, reunion and hugs when we are able to come together, and and it just is so I couldn't be more thrilled to be to be having this conversation with you same and my relationship with you has always been one that I have treasured and coveted and cherished because very early in my business uh there weren't very many women 
in positions of power. And those women who were in those positions of power didn't always see other women because many of them were impacted by what I call the only one syndrome, as though they had to be the only ones, the only one in the room, the only one at the table, the only one that could benefit from an opportunity. But you were not like that. And you were at the helm of a very important book, an very important platform that played a very significant role in the storytelling that would help to shape the narratives and the brands that I was building. So and we really did bond. Yes, we did. Before we even start talking about your contributions to very specifically the emancipation of Mimi, which you work so closely with Mariah and team Mariah on, I want you to talk a little bit about the fact that you were not hatched, that you did not wake up in the year uh, 1999 or 2000 uh, in full makeup, a beautiful gown, uh, ready for red carpet, that you had a start and it wasn't necessarily in the entertainment business. Can you talk a little bit about the way things started out for you? Yes. Well, you're right. I wasn't hatched. And for me, I was born with this natural innate ability to see others fully realized. I can look at a person and see them full. And even if they see themselves as fractured and for, for me, that was a gift that I was always giving to strangers, to family members, to friends. I would give them solicited and often unsolicited advice as to what I felt they should do. I've always had this discerning power around me from the little girl. My mother said she would look outside and all the kids in the neighborhood would be following behind me like Charlie Brown. And I would be speaking prophetically to them about life or about their own lives. And so I was a flight attendant for Eastern Airlines. I flunked out of college. I went to college, Tuskegee, very proud to have gone to um, an HBCU. The funniest story, but Lionel Richie's grandmother, her house was in the middle of the yard. And I would sit on It really was. Yes. And I would literally be going to class and she just took a liking to me and would start talking to me and I would sit on her on her you know porch and she would feed me and we would talk about life and 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 wisdom and and who I would become and she would pour into me and I would pour into her and I would miss class and and literally because I felt like I was gaining more wisdom from from her than I was gaining but Marvette you were really sitting up talking to a woman who had a great hand in raising Lionel Richie, who is currently one of the most famous men in the world, has some of the most famous children in the world, is a judge on one of the more famous shows in the world, American Idol, and has sold probably more records than most of the recording artists who have ever recorded. I mean, this is who you were hanging out with as a kid. Yes. <laughs> wow. Like, look at, but look at how God will, 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 will lead you and place people in your life for reasons and seasons to fulfill the purpose that he has birthed within us. So I didn't realize none of that was, was 
it wasn't like this is Lionel Richie's grandmother. It's like this is this beautiful woman who is is really sharing this incredible wisdom with me and 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 actually was was fulfilled by what I would share with her. And so it, we developed this really beautiful relationship. And needless to say, um, my grades suffered and my mother literally was was like, you're flunking, what's happening? And I, I literally said to my mother, I will turn it around for you if me having a degree is important to you. And she said, absolutely not. If you do not want to be there, I want you to start. You. What a gift from your mother, my well, no, What I mean, a gift. Don't you feel, Danny, that a lot of students live for and, and and they go to school because they want their mother to have that badge of honor to say, my child did this or my child did that. I looked at my mother and said, I will one day make you proud, but it will not be through this platform of college. I, I'm not learning anything. I'm not. And I don't believe it's equipping me with what I need to go where God is taking me. And she, you know, supported that. She really did. She supported that. And without that support, I think I would probably have ended up in a very different place. Um, I would have been unhappy and I would have struggled. And who knows what that would have led me to. So she emancipated me. She allowed me to leave. I went back to New York. I started um, flying for Eastern Airlines. Eastern Airlines, literally, I flew for several years and our last flight was when Eastern went out of business, literally in the air. And I found myself living in New York City or actually in New York City that night with no place to stay with $200 in my bank account. And Eastern had canceled our hotel rooms. And so mm. I called a dear friend, Maurice Starr, who happened to be the manager and, and the creator of two amazing groups, New Edition being one of them. But at the time... New Kids on the Block, which were in the height yes. of, of the height of their heights. And yes. I literally said, Maurice, I'm stuck. I remember you telling me you had apartments in New York. Do you think I can go and stay at one of them? And he's like, sure. But just to let but you Marvette, know. Wait, let me slow you down for one second. So were you meeting a lot of amazing people by being a flight attendant? Was that its own kind of education? Because I feel like you have all these relationships and some of it came from that work. Yes. And so that's, I'm glad you brought that point up because as a flight attendant in the late eighties, which is when it was being a flight attendant was, you know, stewardesses, as we were called, was a very prestigious job, right? It was hard to get. It was, there was a lot of scrutiny. You had to be a certain height, a certain weight, uh, you know, a certain, they had this, this profile of what you needed to be. And for me, I really took that job and said, okay, Lord, because mind you, I was supposed to be 5'2", and I was barely 5'1". And I exercised faith and said, I'm going to faith it until I make it. I went into the, the you know, physical that, that you have, and I stretched myself up against that wall no with my no hand crossed in front of my heart, like clasping as if I was praying. And he said, yeah, okay. And I started talking to the doctor as he was like, you know, doing my weight and measurements because I was 5'1 all day right? But you had to be mandatory 5'2 in order to reach the overhead bins. This man wrote down 5'2 and I was like, thank you, Jesus. And I knew from that moment that I was on the course that God set for me. I knew because there's no way I should have gotten that job. 
No way. No way. So got the job, went to Miami, went through the training and started this journey as a flight attendant. What did most of the flight attendants do in between service? After we serviced the cabin, they would go and sit on the jump seat, but not Marvette Brito. I was out in the cabin talking to customers and, and upgrading people whenever I worked in the first class cabin. And Danielle, by the time Eastern Airlines went out of business, I had amassed over 200,000 business cards and over a thousand letters of, of recommendation and, and, and commending my work and my service because I would upgrade people because you know what I thought, Danny, I thought every single leg I would fly. I was based in Atlanta, Atlanta, Charlotte, Charlotte, Atlanta, Atlanta, LA, Atlanta, you know, LA, Atlanta, Atlanta. We would do what was called turnarounds, right? Um, Sometimes I would lay over, but I did a lot of turns. Every time I flew, I looked at it as though God was placing 150 new souls in my life that would somehow play a part of my purpose. And I was developing and nurturing relationships, learning stories, learning if they were going to a city, if I could share my wisdom and what I knew about that city. And in turn, people would, here's my business card. If you ever need me, if you're ever here, reach out. Or if I can ever be of service to you, reach out. Thank you for your service. Because I figured I'm going to use this airline and all their assets because God placed me here to build my own equity. And that is what I did. And that is what I've done in every single role. Because I think people in life look at what they lack instead of the opportunity and the ecosystems they've placed, they're placed in. What you're really saying too, is that every job, every situation can be more than that job or that situation, because you find yourself with, you said $200 in your bank account, man, listen, in New York city, I mean, Marvette, that's not going to get you uptown really. So you called Maurice Starr. He said what? He said, absolutely, you can go and stay in one of the apartments. I didn't know how long I'd stay, but I knew I couldn't get back to Atlanta because Delta and the other airlines were busy covering our passengers. Remember, Eastern was a massive airline that just went belly up. The last thing they were concerned about was getting the employees home. So I was stuck. You know, the hotel rooms were canceled. I was literally freaking out. Maurice said, fine, go and stay in one of the apartments. So I go to the building. I go to the first apartment and Donnie's in the apartment. He cracks the door. Oh, hey, 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 Marvette. I've got, I've got some, some guests here. Go to, go to, go to one of the other apartments. Okay. I go to the next apartment. Same thing. He opens up the door. Hey, Marvette, I've got some guests in here. Remember these guys are at the height of their career. They were. Go to the next apartment. The next apartment is the penthouse. So I figured, okay, that's the biggest. And so, but at this point I'm thinking, If I can't, if they don't let me into this apartment, I'm screwed. Okay. I knock on the door. He opens up. I'm like, oh, you're just the brother. I need to stay here tonight. Maurice told me I can stay in one of the apartments. So I literally push the door open and I go find a room and I stay in that apartment. The brother that opened the door was Marky Mark. Oh, okay. Not Marky Mark of the Funky Bunch. Marky Mark. Marky Mark Wahlberg, brother to Donnie Wahlberg of New Kids on the Block. Marky Mark, the TV and film star right now. 
Marky Mark, who actually had a little hit, though. It was kind of a big hit, actually. But Marky Mark was just the brother. So for me, I'm thinking to myself, mm, you're just the brother. So I'm not about to like, so as soon as the door opened, I stuck my foot in it. Like, you're not about to shut this door because if I can't stay here, I'm, I'm like, where can I stay? So I walked past Marky Mark, stayed in that apartment. And that was the beginning of my New York footprint. That was the beginning of me living in New York City. Um, I stayed, I walked outside. I had a Mary Tyler Moore moment. The energy of New York was sucking me in. I knew that it was where I needed to, to, to birth the next uh, season of my purpose. So I asked Maurice, you know, can I stay here in one of the apartments until I kind of get myself acclimated to New York? He said, no problem. We really just use it for the guys when they're in and out. And when we come in for meetings, because he lived in Boston, went back to Atlanta, packed up my apartment, moved to New York City. And that was how my journey the next phase of my journey began. Can you talk a little bit about uh, a particular piece of mail that you were asked to open in yes. uh, Maury Starr's, uh, one of his apartments? Yes. Yeah, so I was asked, a FedEx came and I was asked to open a, 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 an, an envelope um, because he was obviously expecting it. So I opened it up and it was a check for more zeros than I had ever seen in my life. I, I in fact, I kept counting backwards. Like, what is this? Like, I, I, I and I remember saying, yes, the, 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 the check came. Yes, this is here. Okay. 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 Great. Great. But what was more profound about that moment is that it was never picked up for like a month it, it, it was, and, I, and I'm thinking, wait, wait, you could leave a check this large here for this length of time. So when I brought it just back sitting. up to him, just sitting, just sitting. And, and he said, oh yeah, that's just for the ancillaries from the guys from the tour. And I thought, ancillaries? Okay, okay. So this isn't even their core money. This is from the ancillary. This is from the brand extensions. This is from the merchandise of the tour. The branding. The there's branding. The yeah, there's the, the branding. word. At that point, Danielle, branding was not another letter of the alphabet. It was really just spoke about as the, the ancillaries, the, the, the additional uh, you know, streams of revenue that could be monetized and leveraged right. and built, Right. So this was um, an so education. Me, this was an education moment for you. This was like, okay, major, major, because I thought to myself, how many artists are, are only focusing on their core capability and not on how they can leverage that core capability in an intersectional way across other streams of revenue that could be built and that could be cultivated in an effort to build an empire. So that a light bulb went off for me. And, and, and literally in my mind, I started to think about how artists weren't looking at themselves as enterprises. They were looking at themselves as artists. And, and so that I went on this journey of, 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 and it made sense of my gifts. It made sense of how I saw past a person's art and I saw 
past a person's role or job in a futuristic way. I really saw more than they than, than they even embodied at that moment. And that is where the vision for my firm was birthed. As we were just saying earlier, we were outside in the 1990s and 2000s. New York was alive. Like it was bristling with cultural energy, whether you were in Midtown, but better if you were in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Harlem, it was on fire. There were clubs everywhere. There were guest lists to be on, or there were velvet ropes to hop over. I mean, this was the era of Usher's Yeah. This was the era of Alicia Keys' If I Ain't Got You. This was the era when Outkast double album with Hey Ya and The Way You Move, the one that won one of the few Grammys for album of the year that hip hop has ever won. We were out here dancing to goodies, to lean back. We were out here dancing to Khalees' milkshake. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right, it's better than yours. I could teach you, but I have to charge. Marve, can you talk just a little bit about the culture of that era? Because this is that era when you and Mariah Carey got together and began working on what would become the emancipation of Mimi. That era was the one of the most defining eras, I, I think, of, of, of it will be the most defining era of my life, I believe so much of culture, so much of what we benefit and enjoy in culture today was shaped during that era. And for us to have been a part of it, right? Like Puffy's white party and, and, and and in the Hamptons and how can I be down? And, you know, remember in Miami started, how can I be down in Miami? There were still old, you know, older white people walking the beach and, and South Beach really consisted of News Cafe and the Clevelander Hotel. And that was it. That and, was and, it. It, and it took our culture coming in with how can I be down and and, you know, me putting Russell Simmons and Puff and and Andre in those bungalows at the Delano Hotel, which was really the first boutique hotel in, on South Beach that Ian Schrager had opened. With those, and I had, with, those with those draperies blowing in the tidal breeze. Oh, the right. energy of that time. Right. But but that energy was captured through vibe, through the message vehicles of, me, of media that then yes. translated all over the world. And, and Miami then became this place that people wanted to experience through the lens of hip hop and culture that we helped to, ham- to amplify. It was our handprint that shaped that whole era. And that era is is symbolic of how Miami Beach, South Beach evolved. Puffy laid the blueprint for that. How yes. can I be John laid the blueprint for that? The Willie Awards that 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 I oversaw laid the blueprint for what South Beach has become. And we often don't get credit for that because people get amnesia, you know, when it comes to our contributions, because oftentimes, sadly, as a culture, you know, we will will ignite something, but not make sure that we 
are, are a part of the continued evolution of it, right? But yeah, that was an era in New York where so much was birthed, um, you know, and, and, and as I look back at it, it, it all really, it all really revolved around music and vibe was the epicenter of that. And so for me and all the things that we were able to do and navigate during that time was a reflection of this burgeoning culture that we, we all had our handprint in. Remember at the time, my my boyfriend was one of the founders of FUBU. And so you probably remember the FUBU Y2G, um, the big event that we had in St. Martin in 1999, where Tina Marie and Mary J. Yes. And, and all these people came um, you know, to perform. So when I look back at the 90s, Danielle, and I look back at, you know, the Source magazine and Vibe magazine and 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 all of these cultural institutions that shaped the way we thought, the way we dressed, the way we moved, the way we partied, the way we did business. It, yes. it, it is all such a connective tissue between what that was and who we have now become. Very and much me, true. When you talk about, you know, the, the, emancip- the emancipation of Mimi, for me, everything I did was about emancipation, some emancipating someone's gifts, emancipating their talents, but doing it in the most authentic way. That is what I think people miss about the era of the 90s, Danielle, is that there were no guardrails, right? There we weren't. were people were just they were free to be who they were without judgment, without, you know, backlash from followers, without any kind of, of, of um, you know, chronicling or capturing. We were just free. Yes. yes. We were just free. We, were, we didn't even, we did not realize the, uh, the amount of freedom, I think, that we were experiencing at all. And I think about just, I mean, there were wild nights, right? There were wild nights and quiet moments. Um, it was easier, for better or for worse, to to have secrets. Um, it was easier to to take your time with things. It was easier to make a decision overnight. It was just uh, very much a different time. I think that there are positives, obviously, to the era that we're in now. But I do think some ways that you use the word fertilization earlier. And I think there was something about both being concurrently free and somehow in a bubble that really fertilized the culture. Would you agree with that, Mark? For sure. For sure. Because I think that we were free to experience. We were free to fail. We were free yeah. to, to, to really explore we were free to really allow ourselves to be guided in a way that I think our current culture, no one wants to fail. No one wants yeah. to be because they don't believe that, that, there's, that there are any learnings or blessings in failing. But like I they don't believe that there's another, that there's, there's another side there's something that comes after failure. Absolutely. I think, I think just because for me, as I, I hate to fail, let me not lie. But one thing about, and maybe this is true for you with clients and working with them, but for me, publishing a magazine every month, you learn quickly that if you concentrate on what was a poorly selling issue in February, 
then how are you going to make March? How are you going to think about April if you're sitting in the sadness of February? Like, uh, you just can't. And I remember having to learn that, though. Um, people had to tell me, previous editors, shout out to, you know, Alan Light, Jonathan Van Meter, editors who told me, why are you thinking about what your numbers were in March when you have a summer double to plan, sis? Like, right. you can't sit in that failure. You cannot. What are you learning from it? What did you do on that cover that is going to help you create a better one for summer? Because that's where what we need to do to survive and thrive as a brand, as a brand right now. That's what right. we need to do because we were always at Vibe as so many Black media organizations were and still are always struggling to survive. So you didn't have time to sit in those those failures at all. No, not at all. Not at all. But I also think that who who really can define success? Success isn't always in numbers. Success is an impact. And, 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 and oftentimes we are when you are a forward thinker, when you are a forward thinking strategist, your ideation is often ahead of culture. So it won't be appreciated in that moment. Thank you. It will be appreciated historically when people look back at that moment. Yes. But it won't be appreciated in the moment that you did it. It's like, you know, I used to use this term heat seeking missile a lot because we worked in an industry that really only gravitated to what was hot. They never really wanted to invest in what would be. They only were they were only willing to invest in what was. Yes. And, and that is where I think our relationship really developed because you 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 believed and invested in my vision of what something had the potential to be, not what it was when I brought it to you. And that no. takes a real gift. That takes But that a wasn't Marvet, I love you. I do. But that wasn't personal. That's because you had a track record. Right. I knew that you could see. Right. You and Mariah came to know each other through that movie Monsters Ball. My strategic positioning for the emancipation of Mimi was crafted from my vision of seeing the totality and fullness of Mariah, knowing that the world had only met or been introduced to fragmented pieces of her soul and of her brand. And I think that the, the, the dust of glitter um, remained as a very soft and tender spot in her career and her life. And I think so much so that it was overshadowing the incredible work that she had consistently delivered as a recording artist um, and not just a recording artist as the number one highest selling female recording artist of all time. So I received yes, even at that time, she already had 15 number one records. Yes, she did. But, you know, in, 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 in this business, you're only as good as your last hit, right? It's true. You're not, you know, like Michael Jordan always says, you can't get points today for yesterday's game. So mm -hmm. every album that you put out as a singer, you're judged and measured on that the performance of that record because it's about numbers and it's about uh, data and it's about, uh, you know, how well you do and if a label is in the black or the red after your project. So I crafted a brand print 
and campaign strategy around the authentic attributes of who I had known her to be, not who she was perceived to be throughout some of the setbacks and challenges she faced along her journey. I also think what people leave out of the situation with glitter is that one, it's gone on to become a cult classic at this point, and it's being redeemed in a lot of ways for, you know, the film itself and for the soundtrack. Mariah has an incredible voice, and I'm not talking about her singing voice. I'm talking about an incredible voice that 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 understands who she is and where she wanted to go. But I think for most of her early career, that voice was muted. I think that she mm. was very much controlled and and her career was navigated masterfully I must say but in a way where it didn't allow her to have the independent voice and the input that she was equipped to have that she was really equipped to 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 share I I don't believe that she was empowered to really be her full self which is why to be Mariah Carey yes right which is why the emancipation of Mimi was called that because it was the first time that she felt that her inner voice, that she could give rise to her inner voice. And she was surrounded by people like me who advocated for that, who celebrated that, who empowered that. Because there are a lot of people in life, Danielle, who make a living by off of other people's weaknesses. Because if they're not weak, you have no role in their life. If they're not weak, you have no influence in their life. If they if they see their own power, then they don't need you for yours. But I was comfortable. Marv, let me just let me just pause you right there and say, I wish, I wish that that was not true. But it is absolutely four thousand percent true. Not just in the entertainment business but in life in general. I'm so happy that you're speaking on your part in emancipation. Okay, so tell me what happened when you got the call. You were in the middle of dealing, you know, finishing up with Monsters Ball. Lee Daniels' whole career arc, he would go on to do what Precious, uh, The Butler, uh, The United States, most recently, The United States versus Billie Holiday. It's like, so you're having this success and you and your services are being called upon. What are your first thoughts? My first thought was I knew Mariah and I felt like who she was at her core was never fully being shared with the world that she was misunderstood, she was misinterpreted, that there was a lack of context around her gifts and so I was willing to meet with her. So we met and we had a conversation and it was a really brief one. And it was one where I just looked at her and said, would you be willing to tell uncomfortable truths in order for people to really understand who you are and who I know you to be? And she looked at me and she said, yes. She looked at me and she said, yes. And from that, I knew that the emancipation of Mimi was the journey that we would embark on. And that would be a journey that people would get to see her in a way that they had never seen her because she had been insulated and, and, and protected and kept from people really understanding who she was and at, at, at the deepest core. So I went back home 
and I opened up a notebook and I crafted like an architect draws a house. I crafted the brand of Mariah. I crafted what it would look like, what it would sound like, what it would, um, you know, how it would interface with the public. And it was really off from this woman who I, I had known. She was a friend. I mean, we had a relationship, um, you know, so so we, we, we had a friendship. Uh, and so it wasn't hard to 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 craft a strategy that I knew would amplify her gifts in a way that they had not been amplified. And that was the journey that we went on. And you know what was that it journey hard? was? No. No, Once you got on the journey, like, were you guys trudging or were you guys floating? You know, the hardest part was the naysayers. The hardest part was the people who didn't believe in her the way I believed in her. And there were many of those people that did not believe that we would achieve the biggest comeback in the history of music. I said, if you trust me, you will be at the Oscars within two years. And where was she in less than two years? At the Oscars with Precious. And my predictive vision became a reality. I shared that she would write a best-selling book. That came to fruition. I shared that she would achieve historic genre-defining milestones. And in spite of the many naysayers who did not believe that my vision could be realized, everything I predicted that she desired for her life and her brand came to be. Talk so, 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 you know, everything I told her, I manifested from best-selling books that she had a best-selling book in her that she, you know, Michaela is the, is the editor that she met at Essence. Michaela wrote Mariah's best-selling book. I called that in our first meeting. Absolutely. Emancipation of Mimi was the first album campaign that allowed her the space and the platform to fully be able to embrace and celebrate her identity as a Black woman in a way that empowered and emancipated all aspects of her life and her career. I was able through this album launch to amplify and give rise to every aspect of her career that I felt was muted, misunderstood, or marginalized, and through written and visual assets and key partnerships and introductions, began to reposition her to bravely step into the full power and gravity of her career. So the first thing we did for Emancipation of Mimi, against the wishes of many at the record company and many in her management, was the cover of Essence Magazine, where that cover said, the most misunderstood Black woman in America. That was the first cover we did for Emancipation of Mimi, right? Because I know that Black culture is responsible for the contagious adoptive behavior patterns that spread globally. So that was the first place that we needed to It landed like a cannon. Do you hear me? I recall, like, what? When that happened? Listen, and this was the other thing. Mariah Carey's album covers. You know what she I told her? She looked like that an embossed shoot? figure. She looked like an embossed figure. She was standing there as she had never stood in any previous album art in her entire career. Can you talk to me about that imagery? Absolutely. 
I walked into the photo shoot. She had her hands in her face, her hand on her face, like she, like all of her other album covers. And I went over to her and I said, I want to see you like this. And I put my hand in the air and I showed her the posture. And I said, because you know what this represents? This sends a message that it's time for all the seat fillers to get up. Everybody that's been holding your place and thinking that they can come for a space that you have abandoned or have or, 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 or haven't occupied, it's time for them to come up. And I need that posture from you because the visual identity of this album needs to show people that that Mariah that you all knew, this is a different Mariah. This is an empowered Mariah. This is an inspired Mariah. This is a, a Mariah who is taking control. And, and if you look at that posture, I you have it. never seen her project the, the real, real posture of, oh, I'm back. I'm back. I believe in myself. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and I am back. And it's no longer about my pretty face. And it's no longer about anything other than the power of my position. And that is what that that is really what that record cover did. And, and everything we did throughout the album did that. You know, we launched Emancipation of Mimi with an E special, an E one hour special. We launched Emancipation of Mimi with another historic moment that you will appreciate, Danielle. I went to the 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 the, the morning show. Now, you knew back in those days. It was just proper for everybody to go to the Today Show because the Today yes. Show was the number one morning show for musicians. At but that I didn't time, go there. Yes, it was. I didn't yes. go there. You know what I said? I said, well, let me look at, let me do the math. We know Mariah has millions of, 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 of fans and we only need them for the day that she's on, on, on TV. So I went and I had a meeting with Good Morning America, which was, not the leading morning show at the time. And yes. I sat there and I said, okay, you all have a show called Desperate Housewives on the air. It's the leading show right now. I said, so if we come to you, these are some things that I would like to do. And I was sitting with Mark, the team at Good Morning America. And so I said, can we get a billboard in Times Square? You all have that real estate right outside your studio. Can you give us that? Uh, 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 no one has ever asked for that. Well, well, I'm asking for it. Also, can you give us a commercial at night during Desperate Housewives to drive people to Mariah's performance? Uh, 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 no one's ever asked us for that. Well, we're and, asking. And we want to shut down Times Square and have her perform outside. Uh, uh, no one has ever asked for that. Do you want to know what that Times Square performance became at Good Morning America, Danielle? What's that, Marvette? That birthed their summer concert series. They now this have why. a summer concert series that was birthed after the success of Mariah Carey's outside performance that I negotiated for her to appear on Good Morning America and a strategy that she trusted and believed in me to deliver. So it wasn't any one thing that we did. It was the strategic positioning throughout a number of things that we did that allowed her to enjoy Emancipation of Mimi 
having the over 20 million dollar uh, 20 million album sales that that she enjoyed so it was a number of of historic milestones that we were able to achieve with that record Marvette Brito let me tell you something the gratitude that we have for you being so generous with your time and your spirit and your expertise today we cannot thank you enough you have your own page in the Black Girl Songbook. You have contributed more than I think people understand. You talk about best-selling books and you talk about movies and you talk about historic moments. Marv, I need that movie based on your life, ma'am. I need that. I need that, please. And I need also for the Black Girl Songbook listener to know that because Marvette does have to go, but I need them to know that Marvette, as she said, was not hashed. I can testify to rolling around Manhattan with Marv, blessing where my girls at on our way to go hang out with Mariah, to go hang out with Kim Porter, may she rest in peace, to to party and have a good time. It was a lot of work, the 90s. It was. It was a lot of work, the 2000s, in the music business, in the entertainment industry. But I always like people to remember that we were quite human and still are. We were enjoying ourselves. We weren't in every moment just, you know what I mean, at the blackboard at the necessary like industry events we were living our lives and having a good time we were fellowshipping we were partying we were night clubbing we were shopping we were as Marvette we were having boyfriends the wrong ones and the right ones and all of this goes to what we are as women in this business so Marvette thank you for embodying all of that humanity and work ethic and imagination and accomplishment. We really do appreciate you and thank you so much for being a part of Black Girl Samba. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and sharing. Oh, Omar, thank you so much. Thank you, Marvette. Like, Marvette, I can't say enough Good about. I think I probably already said a lot, but I'm telling you still, it's not enough. Marvette, you are deeply appreciated and we are so happy that you made time for us. Like, it's just, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. You can keep up with Marvette Brito at Marvette Brito on Twitter and Instagram. It's M-A-R-V-E-T-B-R-I-T-T-O. And as for me, you know, I'm always at Twitter and Instagram. My name on both platforms is Danamo. That's D-A-N-A-M-O. And now for the amazing Black Girl Songbook team that helps put together every single episode and, of course, helped make this Mariah Carey appreciation episode all that it is. That would be producers Trudy Joseph and Donnie Beecham. Story consultant Taj Rani and DJ Steve Porter is on sound design. 
Our talent booker is Allison Turner. And on additional production supervision, we have Juliette Littman and Chelsea Stark-Jones. Amanda Long is our publicist. And Sean Finnessy is always nearby with advice and encouragement. Black Girl Songbook is here for you. On Spotify, via The Ringer, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You know where you are. This is the place in the space where the creativity and talent of Black women always comes first. This is where you will hear music from Black women and stories by and about Black women. You will hear, as you have on this episode, my stories. This is where you will experience Black women creatives receiving the credit we are due. Now, you know what we're about to do because we always do it. This is actually story consultant Taj Rani's favorite song. Taj loves a good whistle register, and I think Mariah might have her favorite. She says that Mariah just keeps leveling up with the whistle and that this is when Taj and really all of us knew that Mariah was going to be Mariah. Let's listen in. 